Good evening. Am I on? You can hear me all right? Good evening. <laughs> Anyone? No? Nothing? All right. Vic put you to sleep as he was threatened to do. Now, how do I turn this on? Oh. Is my buddy Dave back there? Did I turn it off just now? I went ahead and hit every button. Uh, is it good? Are you confident? No. Hey, how's everyone doing tonight? Excited to be in church? Warmed up? A little bit of a longer day, I guess, if you stuck around for the, the members meeting and all sorts of different things, and then you got home and had your sacred Sabbath nap. Who was able to take a nap today? Very good. It's a smaller percentage than what I would have expected, so I'm certainly praying for you. This weather is perfect for a nap. Some of you are saying, shut up about it. It's been a, a pretty rough day, but we are in God's house tonight. We're going to study an interesting subject, as Vic has already just mentioned, on the topic uh, of angels. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing myself. Who am I? That doesn't really matter tonight. We're going to open up God's Word and see what God would speak to us on this very peculiar subject. So let me just poll the crowd here tonight. Who has ever been in a church service or maybe a, I don't know, maybe a Bible class or a midweek service and you've heard uh, a, a teaching that was entirely uh, isolated and dedicated to the subject of angels before? Just let me see your hand. Okay, okay. That's, that's a few, not too many. And, and I think what this represents is that the, the fascination with angels that we've seen ebb and flow in churches over the years is something that is fairly unpredictable, but over the last few decades, the, the subject of angels, or at least treating the subject of angels uniquely and, and particularly, has kind of fell out of fashion. Maybe some of the reason because why that's occurred is because we see in the, in the culture around us, in media, film, and TV, and, and in, in, in in you know novels, we see that this constant, this constant, you know, like this enchantment with angels makes Christians sort of feel like they need to take a little bit of a, a step back, and and maybe there's even a degree of embarrassment about what angels are. What does the Bible say about them? We don't want to be seen as those really kooky Christians, right, that are just always entirely uh, just fascinated, even obsessed with angels. But all that to say this, the Bible has a lot to say about angels. The Bible speaks uh, with quite a great deal of exhaustion and repletion about this wonderful topic. And it really does benefit us as Christians to have a working understanding of who or what angels are, why did God create them, how are we unto, uh, to understand their function and role, in the church and in our personal lives. And so tonight we're going to do a little bit of an overview. Now, a number of years ago, I taught a five-part sermon series on angels, and we got all into the nuts and the bolts and the nitty and gritty about, about the Nephilim and the demonic fall and all kinds of things. We're not really going to be able to get into all of that really gloomy stuff tonight, but... At the end of our talk tonight, uh, Tom and I are going to do a, a Q&A. So write your questions down. During this message tonight, you have an opportunity to think about what questions you might want to throw our way. And uh, if they get too hard for me, I'm going to bat them over Tom's way, and he's going to go ahead and answer them for us. So grab a Bible. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews is one of those New Testament books which does not shy away from a, a regular, even constant, one would say, reference to angels. The, the role of angels in the book of Hebrews is significant because 
As we understand first century Judaism, what we call second temple Judaism, just to, just to confuse you, first century Judaism represented a second temple because this wasn't the original Solomonic temple. This was what was known in the time of, as Herod's temple. They had a real fascination with angels. And the Jewish people of Jesus' day spent a lot of time, a lot of energy. They, they, they wrote copious amounts of material and they discussed and thought and argued and debated the subject of angels. And so the book of Hebrews, constantly picks up this theme for us. We're going to zero in our focus tonight as our, as our entry text and something of a, of a text that we'll refer to a number of times in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. These are the words of the Lord. He makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. He makes his angels to be spirits and his ministers to be a flame of fire. This word spirit could just as well be translated as winds. In fact, some of the Bibles that you are using tonight, various English translations will render that. He makes his angels to be winds or, or a gust, if you will, and, and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, we all have this sense that superstition surrounds the subject of angels to great harm. Maybe all of us kind of have that I have that family member that's just like, you know, Christian in name. But once angels kind of come up, they just get absolutely taken over by talking about angels and angels everywhere and the topic of angels. And they've got statues in their homes or maybe they have prayers that they want to pray to angels and all these sorts of weird and wonderful superstitions. Maybe you don't have that family member. You're blessed if you don't. But most of us at some point in our life have interacted with someone who showed an unhealthy amount of fascination and obsession with the subject of angels. And sometimes the Christian response then, uh, because we see the culture and the pseudo-Christian church entirely misunderstand, you know, they might even worship angels, they pray to them, they call upon angels like personal butlers. You ever met someone do that in mid-conversation? I'm just going to call upon angels to, to protect me. And you're like, what's... What's going on right now? Right? What do you think these angels are that they're just standing by waiting for you to issue your all-authoritative command so that they might swoop in and do whatever it may be? There is gross neglect and misunderstanding. We understand that angels in Scripture are not something that God shies away from revealing, but certainly something we would do well to understand. Abuse in this area comes from serious lack of biblical understanding. So we see an excessive fascination or, on the other hand, a blatant disregard, which we see is in fact the source of many problems. Misrepresentation of angels uh, in art and film and pop culture. No, I hate to break it to someone here tonight who was under the illusion dead people don't go to heaven to become Angels, if you've suffered under that foolish idea, I'm here to liberate you tonight. The Word of God tells us that that, in fact, is not true. What we do know from Scripture is that angels constantly inhabit places of worship. Angels constantly guard and protect Christians. Angels are sent on assignment from and by God to forward His purposes. Angels, mighty warrior spirits that are understood as as wind and gusts and flames and fire. We have to understand this. Let me quote John Calvin for you, one of the preeminent theologians of the Reformation, preeminent. Calvin said this, God has been pleased to give angels the charge of our safety. Hence, they attend our sacred meetings. By that, he means the, the church service, what we're doing right here tonight. 
And the church is to them, Calvin said, a theater in which they behold the manifold wisdom of God. Takes that from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. There's a curious statement Jesus makes in Matthew 18, verse 10. Jesus said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? How do we understand that phrase from, from Jesus who said that the, the angels of the little ones are always reflecting on the very face of God? John Piper offered this uh, word of clarification. He said, what Jesus means is, let the magnificence of every unimpressive Christian, their entourage of angels, silence our scorn and awaken awe in the simplest children of God. In other words, the scriptures give us this idea, some of it's been carried a little too far by pseudo-Christian religions or pop culture of guardian angels, you know, angel on one shoulder, demon on the other shoulder, you've seen all this in, in the wacky world of pop culture, but scripture does tell us that God commissions angels to take care of us, to fight battles on our behalf with demonic influences and demonic forces, and most peculiarly to inhabit the sacred worship of the Church. So angels are all around us. How many angels are there? We're going to look at that in just a moment, try and answer that question. But what we do know is that angels inhabit this world as incorporeal, that means spiritual beings, non-physical beings. They inhabit this world and they, they ascend and descend according to the commission of God. Genesis 28 verses 12 records this for us. Jacob dreamed... And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending it. What we understand is these angels, given charge by God to forward God's purposes, they actually engage in real time and space, in the real material world, sometimes forwarding, well rather, always forwarding God's purposes, sometimes for the protection of God's people, and sometimes for the outright warfare of bringing about God's glorious purpose. One great story, many of you may know this from the Old Testament, is Sennacherib came with a, a mighty army of the Assyrians to destroy the, the, the cities of Judah and particularly Jerusalem. And, and the king Hezekiah and Isaiah, they, they prayed for God to protect them and God sent an angel. Now the army of the Assyrians numbered close to 200,000 soldiers. And this is what we read in Isaiah 37, 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So away with this thought that, that, that angels are soft and cuddly and cherubic little kind of baby creatures with little, little wings on their back and little kind of love arrows on a, on a strung on a bow. That's entirely fictitious, what the Bible reveals that angels are mighty warriors. Such is the glory and the stature and the magnitude of angels is that the Bible tells us that so often when they manifest themselves in their true form, the first words they have to speak is, fear not, don't be afraid, don't wet your pants, don't fall down dead. They have to, they have to reassure you that you've seen an angel, it's not the moment of your death, you're going to survive. Such wasn't the luck, of course, or the fortune of these Assyrians who came to destroy Ju Judah and the capital of Jerusalem as the angel of the Lord struck them down. So what exactly are angels? The word just means 
messenger. It means one that's sent. Angelos in the Greek means someone commissioned with a task, with a message or a purpose or some kind of a commission from a higher authority. The New Testament uses the word angelos in a far more broader semantic range than just angels. In the book of Revelation, seven letters are written to the churches of Asia Minor. And each letter is addressed to the angel of the church of Smyrna or Thessalonica or Philadelphia or whatever it may be. The the angel of the church represents the messenger of the church. Not that every church has one distinct angel, that Jesus is writing letters to them, but the the teaching elder, the, the, the preacher of the church would be representative of God's angel in the church. Hard to believe in this church that your lead pastor, teaching pastor, could ever be referenced as an angel, but if you stretch your imagination, you may even be able to believe it's true. He burned me last week about my alma mater, so I have to get Tom back in some way, shape, or form. Hebrews 1.7, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. The descriptions here are very intentional. Angelic winds, spirits, incorporeal, immaterial, untethered to the material world of laws of physics, not prone to disease, destruction, or death. John Gill, the great Reformed Baptist uh, commentator, he wrote this on this text. He said, this speaks for their invisibility, their velocity, their power, and their penetration. The angels can go where otherwise physical limitations would prevent us from going because God makes them as spirits and winds. Now, to be clear, angels are very much able to adopt physical form. And do physical things. As we, as we emphasize the spiritual nature of angels, don't forget the fact that an angel slayed and killed 185,000 Assyrians, right? Don't think like, like, like pop culture movies and TV shows like, like ghosts where they can't really touch things. Think, think angels can actually interact and can very much put on a very personal human form and can even be appearing so physical that you might be fooled. The book of Hebrews says, don't neglect hospitality, because in in, in being hospitable, some of you will actually entertain angels unawares, right? This isn't isn't trying to say that an angel comes to your door, he's looking for somewhere to stay, and you invite him in, and you try and feed him food, and every time he puts the fork in his mouth, you know, the steak drops to the ground. He's He's just an angel manifesting in human form. Angels in the Bible actually eat food. Abraham hosted angels for a meal, and they were able to eat Angels can do very physical things, and yet at the same time, as our imaginations get really stretched by this idea, they're never dependent on the physical world or the the space-time continuum that you and I are entirely dependent on for our material existence. And so we think about these kinds of discussions. What kind of space do angels take up? It's been reported that the medieval theologians would debate, some of you may have heard this, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Has anyone ever heard that before? Yeah, there's a few people heard. Just let alone the fact that there's never ever been found any extent literature of the medieval period where that was ever even brought up or discussed. It's now kind of become the, the mockery of scholasticism. Like this is all they would do. Sit around and debate how many angels would ever fit or dance. Some have said dance on the head of a pin. But it's actually a really curious question, don't you think? How much space and time Do angels need to occupy for them to function in the full depth and breadth of their being? Think for a moment, if you will, about the demoniac the scripture calls legion. Jesus comes to him of the the place of the Gadarenes. 
Now, we're talking not so much about angels, but about demons. But knowing that demons are fallen angels, we can predicate things of angels that are also true of demons. When Jesus came to him and he asked the demon, what is your name? The answer is, I am legion for we are many. Scholars tell us that a Roman legion was about 6,000 troops, Roman soldiers. In this one man, this Gadarene, he had 6,000 demons. So, so don't think like an angel or a demon for that matter needs a certain amount of space to occupy for them to function. This is why if the debate was ever had about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin, the essence of the question being posed is how much space would an angel slash demon need to function as incorporeal spiritual beings? The angels of God are messengers, ministers. They are designed for service. They are designed to assist and perform the purposes of God. They chiefly serve Christ, his kingdom, and his people. So John 1.51 says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is to Nathaniel, the one of the first disciples Jesus called, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Hebrews 1.14, just a few verses past our main text tonight, says this. Are they, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. The spiritual winds, the, the, the spiritual messengers of God that protect, inhabit, and assist us without us being cognizant thereof or having any of our five senses alerted to their presence or their activity. A large portion of this truth that Jesus and the New Testament is teaching us is to be taken by faith. The second descriptor that's used is that God makes his angels a flame of fire. In biblical times, fire was a very curious thing. Now we've in our modern, technologically advanced, scientific world, we have a far better understanding of what fire is. But in the ancient world, do you imagine how you would have appreciated what fire was? Your daily life is dependent on it. So you can boil water for purification, you can cook food, you can keep warm at night, you can dry your clothes. Fire was an essential part of day-to-day function. But also keep in mind how tremendously fearful the concept of fire was. This is in a day where there was no local fire brigade. And if you suddenly saw your house begin to burn, you couldn't go out the backyard and and turn on a garden hose or, or grab a fire extinguisher. The well was two miles away for the most part. If a fire caught in a home, the entire town might burn down overnight. There was this apprehension, this fear of fire. And when the scripture calls God's angels a flame of fire, there's something really curious that's being demonstrated in this. Because fire, when you look at fire, it looks very material, doesn't it? When you look at a candle or maybe the flickering of a small flame, it looks material. It definitely interacts with the material world, but then you can swipe your finger through it. It's a very strange phenomenon. Now, we know again in our modern world that fire is the combustion of gases and energy. but, But back in those days, they saw this curious physical manifestation of something which didn't seem to be very physical. And it had, it had destructive and helpful powers. And this was how the Bible describes the angelic beings that God commissions to serve. Fire could be a destructive force with little comparison 
So we see in Scripture that angels are often warriors engaged in war for the good of God's glory and His people. In fact, in the Psalms, it talks about God liberating the Israelites out of Egypt. And the psalmist says that, God, you sent your destroying angel into Egypt to crush them and bring out the Israelites by your mighty hand. The constant awareness, the appearance, the effect of angels in Scripture. We asked this question earlier. As we talked about angels constitute a mighty army for good. Someone with some curiosity may say, well, how many are there? How many angels did God create? Do we have a way of scripturally answering the question? We might turn to Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, John in the Revelation says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands. Now the word myriad is literally the Greek word for 10,000. I know you're all Greek scholars, you know that. And so if you're a bit of a math whiz, you want to do the math on the run here, it is 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands times thousands. These are the ones that John was able to see and understand. This didn't include the angels that have been sent on assignment into the world. These are just the ones that are surrounding the throne of the Lord and worshipping and glorifying. Ten thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. Now for all that angels are, warriors, protectors, guardians, ministers, we think about their function even in the sacred assembly. Isn't it, isn't it really curious that angels choose to inhabit wherever the worshipping church gathers in the purity of New Testament worship? Now how do we know this? We know this because in 1 Corinthians 11... It's actually spoken by Paul, who says to the Corinthian church, he speaks, about, he speaks about due order in worship, in particular about gender roles in the church. And he has this really vague phrase. We, we don't have time tonight to delve into the depth of it, but it's really curious. Paul says, Paul says, for the sake of the angels in the church, he talks about women should have a sign of authority because angels doesn't give any detail, doesn't go into depth, doesn't explore or pull it apart and give clarity. But at the, at the base of all of what Paul says, we understand that whenever the church gathers to worship, God commissions angels to be there present, mightily, gloriously, worshiping and serving. As, as John Calvin has already said, the church becomes a theater by which the angels look on and learn and understand something profound about God's gospel of grace. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. For all that angels are, what are they not? Now, straightforward, we should already appreciate. Angels are not to be prayed to. Angels are not to be worshipped. Angels are not to be, they're not to be called upon. When we need to speak to a divine being for help, a supernatural being, we have direct access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. We do not call upon angels to help. We do, not, we do not try and imagine angels around our car when we're about to have a car wreck and, and call upon Gabriel or Michael the archangel to jump on and assist us. That is foolish superstition. It's God's design to commission angels for his purpose. They do not come at our beck and call. That is so essential that we understand that. But God does commission his angels. In fact, a few years ago when I started this series, of which tonight is, as you can tell, a very rapid-fire overview, trying to get as much content as I can in one sermon. What took six hours last time, 
every sermon I preached on angels in the church I was pastoring at the time in Texas, I'm not making this up, but, but there were dozens of people that wanted to come to me after the service and tell me one of their stories about how they believe that at some time in their life, at some moment or point of distress or, or great anguish or whatever it may be, an angel intervened. And they were certain of it. And yes, okay, some of the stories sounded a little bit dubious, right? They sounded like they could have been made up on the fly or, or you could come up with some kind of explanation. But then some of these other stories were just well beyond any actual explanation outside of an angel. I remember two particular stories. I, I thought tonight what would be great is I could give you a teaching on angels. Or I could just tell you all stories for an hour. And I went with the teaching. But I'm not going to leave you without some stories, right? This very genteel elderly couple, you have to remember I'm in the south, East Texas, Bible Belt, and, uh, and this gentleman was the, the head of the English department at one of the largest universities in the area where we lived and ministered. And he tells this story one day, he's driving down the road, very busy highway, people in Texas drive like maniacs, right? Like, like their speed limits are really just mild suggestions. If you're not going 10, 15 miles above it, you're going to encounter some road rage. And road rage in Texas is not something you want to be part of. Everyone's carrying some kind of heat. It's always very dangerous, right? So they're, they're coming down this highway. But you know, sometimes highways sort of turn into main roads where you're going like fast and then the speed limit starts to slow because you're coming up to an intersection. A, a lot of rural highways in the counties of East Texas are kind of like that. And they were barreling down the road and and they came up to a set of lights, but their lights were green. So while he had slowed down his car, uh, he, he was coming to a green light. He was going to just, uh, just cruise right through it at, at the speed he had maintained. And he says that just as he was about to hit the, the stop line, he heard this scream at him. Stop! So he slams on the brakes, utterly shook. He turns to his wife and said, what? And just as he turned this you know, triple trailer semi barreled through a red light. Would have easily killed them. And his wife looked at him and said, how did you see that? He said, I didn't see that. Did you not yell stop? She said, I didn't hear any stop. What do you mean yell stop? He said, I, I vividly heard a voice. This is a gentleman that is highly educated, has a PhD in literature, is not prone to superstition, and he had this encounter where he is convinced to this day an angel saved him and his wife's lives. Now, there are stories like this that abound. There's a wonderful story in the life of Presbyterian minister John G. Patton, who was a missionary to Vanuatu. And on one particular day, John G. Patton was not super welcomed by the natives of the island of Vanuatu, and they were cannibals. And one day, they just decided they were just going to wake up before the sun, go to his tent, kill him, and eat him, as you do. Anyway, this all went on. And, and Patton didn't even know this was happening. He was just happily and, and serenely asleep in his tent. And all these warriors woke up. This was the plan this day, to kill this missionary, to, to kill this, this white man that had come to proclaim this new religion. Anyway, they went on their hunt. They surrounded the tent, ready to do their dubious business. And then they didn't and went home. And John G. Patton knew none of this. And some time elapsed, a good period of time elapsed, until one of the warriors got converted. And the warrior got converted and listening to the preaching of John G. Patton and, and said to him, one question I need you to answer for me is who, who were those 10-foot tall warriors that you had commissioned around your tent to protect you when we came to kill you? 
Patton said, what on earth are you talking about? The story was these warriors did indeed get up that morning before the sun, went to kill the missionary, and were stunned to see that his entire tent was surrounded by these very dominant figures who looked intent on defending the missionary. We could regale all night all of these stories. What we have to do is ask the question, what do angels not do? What are they not? Where do we, where do we stop in our adulation and our celebration of these beings? Firstly, angels, and by this I mean fallen or defiant angels, what you might call demons, what you might understand as the defiant fallen angels, the sons of God in Genesis 6, no time tonight to go into that, a whole labyrinth of discovery, is Hebrews chapter 2 has this curious phrase. In verse 16, it says this, For surely it is not angels that he helps. Now that reference is to Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, the Messiah, the Christ. That it's not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is curious indeed. Because while humans have fallen, all of us are guilty of sin. All of us have corrupted ourselves by rebellion and waywardness and, and our disgruntledness and our bad attitudes, bad hearts, bad emotions and actions and words that we all will regret. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. God has sent the Messiah, the Christ, to atone for our sin should we be found with salvific faith as we believe in Christ but not angels. Not because angels never had a fall. The scripture details with some, with some incredible information about the nature of the, the, the fall of, of a third of heaven's legion were swayed by Satan's deception and plummeted in the demonic rebellion of the fall of angels. Or as I said, the description of the Genesis 6 fall. These angels that came down, the sons of God as they're described in Genesis 6, they're also called that in the book of Job. These sons of God didn't fall because they were, they were swayed by the, the lies and deception of Lucifer, who was an archangel, but because they were swayed by the lust for flesh. The book of Jude tells us that those angels in Genesis 6 that fell, they did not keep their place of proper dominion or authority, but they lusted after strange flesh, and now they've been kept under chains of gloomy darkness, awaiting their judgment. So, so when it says in Hebrews, it's not angels that Christ helps. It's not saying that angels don't need salvation. Fallen angels do need forgiveness, but they are never going to find it. Because it's only, as the scripture says, the sons of Abraham. By that it means those who by faith have received the promises of the grace of God in Christ receive the salvation. Not only do angels never receive the benefits of the gospel, but in fact, angels, and by this I mean those angels that are in glory, good angels, if you want to phrase it that way, they aren't even informed of God's amazing design to rescue human sinners. 1 Peter chapter 1 has this curious phrase. It says, even these things which angels long to look into... Now, I'm going to read you a lengthy quote in just a moment, so I'll ask you to brace yourself because the language is that of the, the old English Puritan Jonathan Edwards who, who wrote a, a couple of paragraphs. When you study angels, if ever you study angels, maybe tonight you're 
Curiosity's peaked. Maybe this is enough. You're done. You don't care if you ever hear about angels again. Whichever way you go after this, if you really want to dive into the depths of angelic theology, what we call angeology, you can't avoid Jonathan Edwards. He wrote copious amounts of literature in the early 1700s on these incredible beings. And in this quote I'm going to read you, it's a little lengthy, so please be forewarned. He references one of the most brilliant Puritans, Thomas Goodwin, who lived about a century earlier. When I read this, what we're listening for is this concept that God kept the redemptive plan of Christ. God kept the angels in the dark about this. He didn't reveal it to them. They didn't know it. They had, they had skerricks and scant bit of material, but they didn't have the full story. This is what Edwards wrote, referencing Thomas Goodwin. Angels are ignorant of the mystery of the gospel until Christ's coming. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and generations, but now is made manifest to believers, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Dr. Thomas Goodwin says this, The doctrine of the gospel, God has kept hidden and close to his chest. Not a creature knew it. No, not even the angels who were his nearest courtiers, his dearest favorites. It lay hid in God, Ephesians 3.9, even hid from them, Ephesians 3.10. A mystery which when it should be revealed should amaze the entire world. And a mystery which will actually put the angels back into school. This is how Goodwin phrases it. As if they'd know nothing in comparison of this. Wherein they should know over again all those glorious riches which are in God. And that more perfectly and fully than ever yet. And so after they had studied, there should come a large volume of new information of the mystery of the gospel of Christ, which will enlarge and perfect and glorify these creatures as they understand the additions of truth. Isn't this a staggering thought? That not only will angels never be the recipient of the grace of God, which is only available to sinners who are of the human form, but secondly, these things were hidden as a mystery from God's own personal angels in heaven So that when Jesus came to earth, you can almost imagine it. You have the powers of imagination. These angels are like, what is happening? What is going on here? And then you picture, right, Jesus going to the cross and and every lash of the whip. The angels in heaven are aghast. But God, how can you let this happen? They're whipping him. They're tearing out his beard. They're pounding him, punching him. They're nailing him to a God, send us. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when, you know, Peter... Peter, right, who pulls out his sword and he's going to defend Jesus against all of the, the, the temple guard and all of Rome and he slashes at the high priest servant's ear and Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I have at my command 12 legions of angels? Do you remember we read in Isaiah that one angel, one angel crushed 185,000 trained soldiers? What do you think 72,000 angels could do? Jesus is saying to Peter, just so you know, you are not my bodyguard. You can't see them right now, but I'm well taken care of. You can picture these angels losing their mind because Jesus never once issued the command to set them loose 
on those that were his tormentors, his mockers, his torturers, and his executioners. All of this was new to the angels. They had no full comprehension of exactly what God was going to do in Christ to ransom and redeem a people who would be called out by his name. So the whole plan of redemption is put on display through Christ. And this is where it gets even more glorious. If you can even suggest that. The New Testament tells us that when the grace of God is received by sinners just like you and I, fallen creatures, undeserving creatures, morally bankrupt creatures like us, when the grace of God is received by us, by our simply receiving Christ, believing in Christ, the Bible tells us that angels are staggered in amazement to see us ransomed and redeemed. This is what Ephesians chapter 3, 7 to 12 says. We'll close out with this reading. We've already gone uh, certainly long enough tonight. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the grace of God's, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's the angelic beings that surround God's throne. When they say, God, what are you doing? God, what is your plan? God, what are you striving to achieve? God points to you and says, this is the mystery. This is the mystery that I'm going to take these sin-sunken, reprobate souls and I'm going to allow my spirit to so take up residence in them, they're going to get a new heart, they're going to be atoned for in the blood of Christ and they're going to be saved. And then those sin-sunken souls are going to be trophies forever to the manifold wisdom of God. That, that they, would, they would help God to communicate to all the spiritual authorities His grace and His goodness. Verse 11 and 12 says this, This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. It's not angels that God helps, but it's the children of Abraham. And the children of Abraham are those who, recognizing their inability to save themselves, their inability to do enough good works or to be righteous enough, and simply come to Christ and say, I call upon you, Lord, for all of your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, and your atonement. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? We're going to close with a word of prayer here this evening as we meditate upon the goodness of God, which is ours in Christ. Father, Thank you for this chance tonight to study your word. Lord God, thank you for this chance tonight to wrestle with what is otherwise a really challenging subject, but one which is so gospel-centric if we understand the commission, the nature, the guardianship of these angels that you've given us, Lord God, to serve the heirs of salvation. Lord, help us to not be like those that get over-fascinated with angels, unhealthily uh, uh, obsessed with them, but... Father, help us also not to just be ignorant 
to, to not just relegate this subject to oblivion because it's too hard or, 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 or too abused by others. Help us, Lord God, to take your word as truth and to live according to its glorious commandments and precepts. Above all, Lord God, help us stand amazed in the gospel. Just like those angels, Lord God, would have been so stunned and amazed. Help us to be stunned and amazed. Help us to be incredibly overawed with all that you've done in Christ. Help us reapply ourselves to, to fight sin and pursue righteousness. And above all, to know that our hope is in Christ alone. And that you, Lord God, are using us believers to, to, to use us, the, the atoned for, the ransomed, the redeemed, the saved. You're using us to put on display your eternal manifold wisdom. We pray you help us, Lord God, to take these truths that we've learned and apply them to our lives that they may bear lasting fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.